Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 84. Have you wanted to generate PDFs from your Python project? Many of the current libraries require designing the document down at the pixel level. Would you be interested in a tool that lets you specify the page layout while it handles the specific details of laying out the text? This week on the show, we talk with Joris Kerlikens about his library for creating and manipulating PDFs named Borb. Borb is a pure Python library that can read, write, and manipulate PDFs. You can use it to build fillable forms, invoices with attached data files, and multiple column document layouts. We discuss the extensive example repository Yoris has created for the library. Yoris shares his background in working with PDFs. He talks about starting the project and the challenges he had to overcome. We also talk about licensing and maintaining an open source library. This episode is brought to you by CloudSmith. CloudSmith is a secure software supply chain management tool for your Python packages and dependencies. Try CloudSmith for free at cloudsmith.com slash sign up. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hi, Yoris. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so funny because we mentioned the library... Back in episode 76, David and I were talking about projects and Borb came up and was really having fun kind of playing around in the library. And it, it's kind of one of these things I keep talking about PDF libraries pretty commonly because I was doing a lot of work for small businesses and creating forms and creating other kind of tools for them. And so it's always been kind of one of these like hybrid things, a, a, a tool that I use very often in Python. Um, so I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, I I was completely surprised last time when Borb came up because I only saw it because somebody linked it to me and I was like, wow, it's happening. <laughs> somebody actually published content that wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. And it got featured in uh, PyCoders a couple times too, which is great. I'm guessing those are based on the articles that you've been kind of writing on, uh, about the library. Yes, so I've been trying to get one article out every week, but I see that it's quite a journey to not just get the content out, that's actually the easy part, but remembering to link it on all my social media accounts and every newsletter that I come across, etc. <laughs> I, I really hope as soon as we turn into an actual full-fledged company, I'm hiring somebody to do that for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So maybe we could talk about a little bit about the history of the project. Certainly. A few years ago, I, I don't recall how long ago, actually, I was working at another software company that builds PDF software, pretty big name in the PDF landscape. So they are called iText, and they mostly build software for Java and .NET. Okay. And I'm still close friends to the founder. He lives two streets away from me. We talk quite often. 
we have a similar interest in movies. So we see each other quite often in the local supermarket or the local movie theater. But then the company changed, as companies do. The company was bought over by a Korean holding, and um, a lot of the developers there, including myself, started looking for other pathways in their career. And I actually didn't think about PDF that much anymore until a few years ago when I was working in Python, which was a first for me. And I had to write some code to generate a PDF document as the output of a test framework that I'd built. Mm. Okay. So I just wanted to do some basic PDF manipulation, create a table, automatically switch to a next page if needed, etc. And to the best of my abilities, I couldn't find a PDF library that actually was as good in Python as iText is in Java. Most libraries will force you to go down to the nitty-gritty level of, yeah. <laughs> of telling you, like, you need to specify exactly at what pixels you would like this piece of text to be. <laughs> uh, Report Lab would be an yeah, example of yeah. that. And I've had somebody on talking about it. And it's very, very, very intricate. And it almost feels like you're doing, yes, I don't know, a, a form of pixel perfect layout which is really painful i mean it's it's great that you can do that and i can understand that there is a need for that that there are people who would like it to be exactly pixel perfect down to the very last dot and that's great but i don't have that amount of time (laughs) (laughs) sure it's funny that that there's a this development of uh of pdf software in in belgium that's pretty cool (laughs) yeah So I developed a library as one does when one is confronted with a problem. So I I decided to hell with it. I I know how PDF works. At least that's what I thought. And I'll write a piece of software that actually does what I want it to do. Uh, And that's that's how this library started. So from there on out, of course, a lot of the ideas came forth, not just from my time with iText, but also having talked about PDF with other international companies like Adobe, sort of having a finger on the pulse with with regards to where is PDF going in the future, uh, what features may be unimportant now but might become very important later on, you know, things like that. Being able to design upfront what the library needs to be able to do. And that's, I think, one of the great advantages because most companies like iText, very good software. But if a company exists for 15 years, you start seeing it in the code base. There are things that you can no longer refactor because a lot of people depend on it or because the software has grown organically in a certain way. So it's, it's certainly an advantage to be able to start afresh, but with the ideas and experience of all those years. That's interesting to think of these larger projects start to calcifying sections of the code that you can't then restructure. It sounds like you have a, a pretty thorough background in PostScript then in order to make a library like that. Is 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 that the case? Um not really. Okay. So mostly my development my knowledge of PDFs comes from having worked at iText and afterwards having worked uh, independently for small other projects with PDF. Okay. But I do know what a PDF looks like on a binary level. If there is one thing I have to credit 
uh, ITEX for, it's the ability to actually invest in people's education. So by the time I was there for a few months, I was able to write a PDF file in a text editor and have it actually be a valid PDF. Okay, cool. Like I, I noticed you go into that a little bit in your documentation. You're talking about the, or actually, I guess it's one of the tutorials. I'm trying to remember which one where you were showing the binary, well, the text output of it mm-hmm. you know, with the EOF and at the end of the file and, and then that it was sort of built backwards. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I think a lot of things in PDF are fascinating from a viewer point of view and from a developer point of view are just an absolute nightmare. <laughs> Building a file like that upside down is is difficult then? Uh, that's not even the most difficult part. For instance, having to insert a signature in a PDF is its own special layer of hell hmm. because you have to be able to tell the signature up front like, you're going to calculate the hash value of these bytes in the file, but then the signature also needs to be part of the file. And you don't know upfront how big the signature is going to be. So that requires a lot of insanity to be able to get that working. Huh. So that's something I had experience with, actually. I was creating <laughs> these forms uh, as far as an end user. Mm-hmm. And you would, you know, it's like these daily reports that, you know, there's an environmental science company. So they're out in the field and getting dirty and they were having a lot of forms that were like sort of half filled out as far mm-hmm. as like paper, you know, with a like clipboard and so forth. And, and then they would come home and they'd scan them and, you know, get the scanner all filthy and so forth. Um, so <laughs> they decided uh, maybe we should go with like iPads. And so we had to decide on a type of software that could could read them. And there's a universe of that, of course. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if that's something that, Compatibility-wise, you go, oh, it's just a PDF. And it's like, well, there's lots of ways of handling these things. And signatures was a nice thing that, like on a phone or a, a iPad, that you mm-hmm. typically could do then with your finger, you know, maybe the style of like a checkout kiosk or whatever, um, paying for a credit card. So that that workflow of like signing with your fingertip has become somewhat noticed as far as done. But then like taking that actual signature... Mm-hmm. I guess bitmap or whatever, and then like putting it into the PDF. Like, that sounds like that's a, a bit of a challenge then as far as storing it. Yeah, I think one of the main disadvantages of PDF or one of the main challenges of PDF is that it's actually not just one type of document. It's an umbrella term for a whole collection of standards, each of which derives from the same base standard, ISO 32000, but each of them also tries to improve upon what the other ones got wrong. Uh, So you have a standard that just defines what a base PDF looks like. And then afterwards, another standard that says, well, you know, we got this part wrong. Actually, (laughs) you should do it this way. I think we're now at version two of the standard, which finally allows for other levels of encryption, allows for algorithms that are no longer deprecated. So Mm. good things are still happening in PDF land, but it's always a bit of a nightmare. Are there ways to... Uh, your The library, which we should talk about a lot more as far as like mm-hmm. the features of it, but one of the things it does is, is read yes. PDFs and extract information from that. Is there, as far as... I know globally this might be difficult to determine, but in your experience, maybe through support tickets or what have you that you're seeing come in, 
is there some standard level that seems to be standard, you know, like people are, are using or, or are you seeing PDFs like from the beginning of the dawn of PDFs uh, coming in and those versions being difficult to read? It's, it's actually a lot of different software producers, like for instance, Microsoft Word allows you to export to PDF, but then there are low level Linux commands that also produce PDF documents, which like you said, are more closer to the dawn of time. Okay. In general, actually, it's not the most, it's more likely to be the most recent producers of PDF documents that screw things over. Uh. Because only more recently have features been added that make it much more difficult to extract text from a PDF document. And I think it's similar to, for instance, having a standard like OSCII, where you have only that many byte patterns that represent the full alphabet that you needed at one point in time. And then afterwards, people realize, oh, wait, there are tons of other languages that we need to support, and we need to somehow hack this into a system that still works. And PDF suffers from the same diseases. So you have a very old kind of base standard. And if you only ever want to extract Western text and Western alphabets, that works perfectly. And most libraries get that right to a very high degree. But then you start looking into things like, oh, well, I have the letter A with this insane accent on it. Right. How is that going to be represented? How is the font that has to be embedded in the file going to represent that? And suddenly it's a lot more challenging to be able to do that. Yeah, I can imagine the specifications of Unicode uh, sort of developing alongside these changes in the PDF architecture. And then this, I don't know even what to describe it as, but this explosion of emoji use mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe being uh, problematic too. Like um, just as far as like, I'm guessing most OCRs just like to say, well, I don't know what that is. It's just a blob. <laughs> exactly. Now the fun part is, and I've seen that being used and I was, this is devilish, but creative was my first response. I've seen somebody create PDFs where the actual text that is being embedded in the document is just a repeat of their company name over and over again. And that's one of the things that PDF allows you to do. It allows you to create your own characters so that you can say, okay, it's going to be drawn as if it is this. But when you extract it as Unicode, you should do this. Uh, uh. And I've seen people use that as a sort of DRM protection, which is beautiful and sad at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, let's dive into the the library a little bit. Sure. I I mentioned briefly that it can be used for reading of PDFs, but Mm -hmm. where it seems to be most powerful in the tutorials that you've been doing is the, the creation of PDFs. So maybe we could dive into some of the... Certainly. Just like a survey of the features because there's tons of them. (laughs) Yeah. So my main goal for Borb is to have a library that makes it as easy to generate documents as you would with Microsoft Word. And that's a very, very tall order because people are very used to working with that particular program. You're used to being able to add text and that it automatically travels to the next line or that it even automatically hyphenates text. Mm -hmm. And all of that is non-trivial to do when you're talking about PDF. So Borb, like the libraries that we've mentioned before, like Report Lab, it allows you to precisely say, I would like content at this particular location. 
because sometimes you have perfectionists, but then it also has a sort of layout engine built into it where you can just say, I would like this page to be laid out in two columns or in this way or whatever. And then you can just say, add this text, please, in this font size, in this style or whatever. And it will automatically take into account leading and margin and padding and whatever. And the document will just look as you would expect a Word document to look. In the case of that, that kind of thing makes me think of two questions, mm-hmm. uh, or actually one comment and a question. The first is the, the idea that it's a little bit like in a GUI, uh, per se, where you are defining sort of column-type structure, and then the window can be adjusted in size and, and kind of go around it so that um, you don't have to constantly worry about the pixels. I guess that's almost sort of a CSS type of thing, too, as far as web design you know, kind of this sort of or general layout kind of stuff, which I think is really cool and, and needed. I, I used a program from Apple called Pages, and I, I was very familiar with the kind of general idea of it had a page layout mode where you could create these, you know, basically squares, you know, or rectangles on the screen and say, okay, this, you know, is where this information in. And then the feature that I enjoyed about it was for like a magazine or what have you, you could say, the text should flow from this container into this next one. You actually had like little arrows to draw where that would happen. Is that something that's implemented in Orb, like as far as like going across pages with this sort of column type layout? Well, it's not implemented to that generic of a degree. So you, as the user, cannot say, here is a collection of rectangles that span a page, and I would like them to be respected in that order. What you can do is use one of the existing layouts, for instance, multi-column layout, which divides a page evenly into columns. There's also a single column layout and some other ones that I'm probably forgetting. But it's a great idea, and I'll see about adding it as a feature. It's something that I, I was really impressed with, in, in like you're saying, like that kind of talking about the idea of somewhat abstracting some of the, the work involved mm-hmm. um, in the layout. So that's really cool. The other question I have that's kind of related to that is you're in laying these things out, you are creating, you're kind of doing this extra work behind the scenes. And I'm guessing that this is, you know, kind of the Python stuff behind the scenes of it deciding how to break words, like you said, letting and, and other things. Mm-hmm. How much kind of work went into doing that? That is sometimes you come across a challenge where you think, oh, this is going to be trivial. (laughs) And then it turns out that it's actually an entire field of research and that that we as humanity don't know yet how to best tackle this. And then sometimes, for instance, with hyphenation, I went into this thinking this is going to be one of those days because how the hell do you teach a computer to hyphenate a word correctly in any language that you want to support. Right. And then it turns out that there's a beautiful algorithm that most software, most commercial software at least, has been using since whenever the algorithm came out and that it's it boils down to a simple lookup of certain patterns within a word and that it marks hyphenation locations based on that. So I was very lucky to be able to find that. I was lucky that the license matched with the license of Bob. So that's the algorithm that's currently being used. And it's the same algorithm you will find in other libraries. Nice. Yes. I'm guessing that was one of those things like you 
maybe started down the rabbit hole in, in digging and then sort of paused for half a second and said, wait, maybe I should look around. <laughs> well, my, my first instinct is always to look around. Okay, good. <laughs> I love learning about new stuff and I'm not naive enough to think that I'm the first person to have to tackle a certain problem. So there's a good balance between doing it yourself and making use of somebody else's work. And I think with Bob, I'm being on the side of cautious. I think there's only like four or five dependencies. So I'm not trying to import the entire Python ecosystem, but I'm also not insane enough to write font handling if somebody else has written a beautiful library that handles font files. Yeah. How are fonts handled inside of Borb? Fonts are handled to the level of reading the files and determining the attributes that a PDF needs from a font uh, is done using the font tools library. Okay. And then for certain built-in fonts, well, to clarify, PDF defines 16 or something fonts as being built in. So any reader or writer should support them. And for those fonts, I simply looked up the font files and extracted uh, its attributes manually and put them in there as a JSON file so that it would be easier and faster to look up. Security within software supply chains has become the major focus for developer and engineering teams. CloudSmith is a software supply chain management tool that provides public and private Python repository hosting for ultra-fast and secure delivery of your Python packages. CloudSmith is a fully compatible PyPI-like repository. With CloudSmith, you have the ability to develop your Python packages internally and privately share them with other teams across your organization. To get started with your own private Python repository, visit cloudsmith.com slash sign up for more information. Yeah, you're using JSON pretty extensively across the, the library. What was your decision for doing that? I would like Borg to be as close to open source and free and accessible for everyone. And the idea of using a format that only I can read is doesn't appeal to me. Me as a developer and as a debugger, if I'm outputting a file somewhere, I would like it to be legible for me so that I know, okay, something went wrong or I need to change this or this is what the system is currently doing. So it's convenient for me as a developer and, and it really... Um, ties into my ideology as having made this project. I want it to be open source. Cool. One of the things that I found interesting and I, I commented on in the podcast episode earlier was that you have a feature of embedding files within the PDF. And in the in that case, it was like a, an example where the data that was inside the tables of, I think it was an invoice, Yes. could be included as a an attachment of JSON with it. And so that if you were sending this file, you would have the PDF to look at and to print and what have you. But instead of having to go through like an extraction process or some other kind of thing, sort of attached to the file was the JSON ready to go. I haven't seen that often that in use. And so I was wondering, is is that something that you experienced in use and or how do you see people using it? I guess there are kind of two questions there. Well, I think for most of the things related to PDF, spec, and standard, 
there will be very large differences in terms of what certain countries use. Yeah. So, for instance, embedding files is something that I haven't seen much in the U.S. market. Yeah. But in Germany, for instance, there is an invoicing standard called Suchwert, which actually tells you that you have to do this. You have to embed an XML file that complies to a certain schema and that specifies what invoice items there are in this invoice, what the quantities are, the price, etc. So depending on where you look, you will find either one or the other. Okay. Yeah, I have to get the name from you and because um, I'd like to learn a little more about that. Because I, I think that, I mean, that's really powerful. I mean, yes, we're passing around these fairly universal reading and printable documents, but you know, having the data with it is like, in our case, in the U.S. centric <laughs> kind of thing, not having the data with it, it seems kind of like a waste, you know? Yeah, I mean, the PDF is more than likely to have been generated by some automated system anyway. So we know the data and we have the data in a database telling you exactly what the item is, how much it costs, etc. So it makes sense because it's not an extra effort. It makes sense to embed it machine readable anyway. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we mentioned a couple of them already, but what were other crucial features that you felt you wanted to have included inside of Borb? Well, every time I include some kind of crucial feature, it's mostly because somebody I know happens to be using it and then nags me for it. So, <laughs> okay. like I said, it, it just started out with me being able to produce a report, and I was quite happy once that report rolled out. And then somebody said, yeah, but I'd like to embed images because, you know, our company logo and so on. Yeah, and I was yeah, like, right. oh, God, no. <laughs> why, would you, why would you do that to me? And then afterwards, Borb started supporting more than just the basic fonts, which was also a big one. And then another big one, but not in terms of features, is actually having set up a testing strategy that checks all of the documents that are produced during tests for visual imperfections. Hmm. That was that was a big game changer for me because before then every release I would run the test suite and I would have to go over each file and check is everything still okay and now I'm able to do that and just have it checked automatically. What would be examples of that? Like things overlapping, things hitting the edges of like where it can be printed. Or? Yeah, things things overlapping or things suddenly switching to the next page because the layout algorithm thinks there isn't enough room anymore. Or in the case of hyphenation, you know, getting the hyphenation wrong and skipping to the next uh, line already. Or with fonts, getting the width of a certain character wrong and suddenly the line shifts a few pixels. Uh. Ultimately, I was surprised by how much test coverage I can do just by checking whether it is still visually equal to the golden sample. And what's involved in doing the sort of compute i'm guessing it's not like you know like computer vision or what have you but like how is it doing uh, this this comparison well first i have the golden samples which define what i want exactly okay and then i convert both the output that was produced on the latest test run using ghost script it has some insane command line flags that allow you to output a png image I do that both for the golden sample and my output, and then I compare those pixel-wise to check whether they are pixel-equal. Okay. I do have some special markers in there because for every test, I also print the date of the test on the test itself. So I've set it to ignore one specific color 
uh, so that I can print the date in that color and be assured that it's not going to count that as wrong. Wow. So it's like kind of a mix of computer testing and then some actual output testing. Yeah. Some of the documents, some of the test output at least is just produced because I think it's a fun document. I mean, at the office, I'm mostly known as that guy who produces PDF documents. So, <laughs> yeah, but it's it's fun. Like, during COVID, we've all been at the office part of the time and, and not part the other time. So it's fun to leave a Sudoku puzzle in the break room so that somebody has something to do when they are sitting there eating their sandwiches alone. <laughs> Right. So yeah, some of my tests produce Sudoku puzzles or other stuff that you can just have fun with. And they are tests, but they're also just documents that I like. Yeah, so along with the the test suite and and the primary GitHub repository, you decided to kind of break things apart and create an examples uh, repository. Yes. Why did you choose to do that? I think the examples repository was getting too big. Okay. One of the comments that I received early on already was that the GitHub repository for Bob was getting out of hand in terms of size. And I noticed that a lot of my code was actually just producing examples and trying to change one parameter about how to add text. And then this is how you add text in bold or in italic or in this particular color. Um, so rather than having very extensive examples that also double as tests. My tests are now much more compacted and testing various features at the same time. And the examples go in detail about, you know, if you want to influence this particular aspect, you should change this parameter. Yeah, the and more than that, it's like, like a very detailed set of documentation. I was uh, very impressed by the kind of granular detail have you had an experience in writing documentation for a library before? No, not yet. But I was originally planning to release a book, a technical manual on um, Borb. And then I've talked to various publishers and the original content, which is now the examples repository, was refused because it was too technical and did not tell a cohesive story. Hmm. So most publishing houses would like me to publish something like, you know, we're going to focus on, I don't know, creating an invoice. In order to do that, you need to be able to create uh, a document with an image because you want to have a company letterhead, etc. So everything needs to flow from this example. Yeah. Whereas the repository that I currently have, like I said, it's much more of a listing of features and things you can do with it. So I asked for permission uh, with the publisher that I'm currently working with, and they said, well, go ahead and publish it. So that became the technical manual. And along with creating all of that, you've been writing a set of articles, which is, again, how we kind of discovered the library uh, you know, with PyCoders. How many articles have you done now? I think there's about 10 articles on stack abuse and... Some of them are still waiting to be published. Okay. I try to get a head start and write articles well in advance so that they can still be reviewed and that I can have a release schedule of, you know, one article every week coming out. Yeah. I guess this might come out in time for some of those other ones. I've seen six of them, I think, up there on Stack Abuse currently. Yeah, I'd have to check. Yeah. 
that's the wonderful thing about writing them up front. After a while, I get complacent and I no longer check whether there are still any articles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have experience in writing articles before this? Yes, sort of. So for companies that I've worked for before, I have extensive experience as an international speaker. And oftentimes there is a certain, please write what you are going to talk about stage. Yeah. So it's it's the same kind of skills. You have to write a compelling little story that you can bring to an audience in just a few minutes. And I found that that skill translates really well to being able to write examples. Yeah. To take a step back to, you said that you're, I guess I got a little confused in the back and forth of, you are creating a, a book for Borb? Yes. Okay. So there's currently, currently I'm working with Manning to write a book on Borb, but it's a whole process. And even though I have a lot of the content already in my head and written down, it's going to take at least until next year according to their schedule, before we are able to release. So that's a very long-term kind of plan. Yeah. Um, this is kind of just a side note. I love the pictures of the birds. <laughs> um, are are those uh, ones that, that you've done, or, or who's done that artwork? Uh, no, those are, those are artwork that isn't done by me. Um, I actually have to check that. I think the license is compatible with being able to publish them in educational material. But I, ju- I just Googled the word Borb and I found these wonderful drawings. Yeah, like you said, they, they were very captivating. And I was like, oh, I need to, I need to have them. And I need, to, <laughs> I need to make sure that there are enough for each chapter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like these ch- chunky little birds. They're pretty cool. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> A couple kind of general questions um, sure. that I was wondering about. Uh, with the release of Python 3.10, have you been going through getting Borb ready for it? I've not yet uh, had the opportunity to do that. I should really look into that. Okay. I think one of the major ones is pattern matching, right? So Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it might offer some opportunities in the low-level parsing of PDF documents. But, you know, that part has been optimized so heavily already, I doubt that it would gain very much. But we'll see. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. The course is based on a topic we briefly touch on during our discussion this week. And it asks the question, what does it mean to write Python code in the way that it was intended, or as many call it, Pythonic code? It's titled, Writing Idiomatic Python. The course is based on an older video course by Mahdi Youssef, and instructor Martin Broyce has updated the course for modern Python, and he takes you through how to access and interpret the Zen of Python, how to initially set up a Python script, how to test truth values, how to take advantage of built-in functions and methods, how to swap variables in place, what is the dry principle, and how to create Pythonic for loops. It's a short course, and I think you'll find it's a worthy investment of your time. It's a great overview for people coming from another language, as well as an introduction for beginners to the idiomatic practices within Python. And like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Plus, you get additional resources and code examples for techniques shown. All of our course lessons have transcripts and include closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. I kind of wanted to talk about the license a little bit. Sure. 
it sounded a little unique to me when I read it initially and it kind of gets into that whole open source world of like, okay, well, how do you choose what license you want? And then in your case, you're, you're looking at building Borb, it sounds like into a business. Um, am I getting those things right? Yes. So actually first step is already there. So I am according to Belgian law, at least a business. Okay. That was a very scary step for me. <laughs> okay. My my mentor in that regard, Bruno, who is also the founder of iText, has always said, you know, as long as you have no money, there are no worries. As soon as you start making money, you have to find a way to, you know, pay taxes, pay people and whatever. So it, it was all fun and games as long as I wasn't a company, but now, you know, it's a company. In terms of licensing, it's currently licensed as a dual license project. So either you abide by the AGPL version 3 uh, or you buy a commercial license. And okay. the idea behind that is that you have to support the open source community. That is actually what I am forcing you to do. At least that's the reason why I picked those licenses. So either you support the open source community by abiding by the AGPL and you make your project open source. That's great. More code in the public domain. People not having to solve the same problem over and over again. That's one option. The other option, if you can't do that, if you are working in some kind of industry where it's frowned upon to share code, then by all means buy a license and you are at least supporting my open source company. Right. In the further development of the yes. library there. Yeah. So either way, you are contributing to some open source company. Can you explain a little bit about the AGPL? What are some of the distinctions there? Just to kind of clarify it for people a little bit. So as a sort of disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer. Sure. Yeah. Anything I say is my my opinion of it rather than my legal expertise. Yeah. So to me, the main, so you have sort of a collection of permissive licenses where the most famous one is perhaps the MIT license, which essentially says you can have this code, but I'm not taking any of the responsibility for it. If it burns your computer or your company down, that's on you. Then you come into sort of more professional licenses and, and the whole debate versus copyright and copyleft, um, where you have the GPL family of licenses. Okay. These are typically copyleft licenses, which force you to be open source or else. Okay. And that's also the one that I used for Bob, where this or else is the buy a commercial license clause. And then the main difference between AGPL and GPL is actually whether or not you can use the product as a service or not, whether or not that counts as using the product. Now, the reason behind that, and actually the reason behind the existence of AGPL in the first place, is oddly enough also tied to PDF and to Google. So at one point when Google was expanding, they built Google Docs. Yeah. Great success. Uh, suddenly we could all use Google Docs online and whatever. And they also had an export to PDF functionality. And they used in their earlier versions um, a version of iText, which was GPL licensed. Mm. And Google claimed, well, you know, our users are using it as a service. They have no access to the code. They are not 
actually purchasing a product. Um, they are using it as a service and this is not covered by this license. So we are in the clear. Uh. And it is as a response to these big internet giants using people's code to build their software so quickly uh, and so pervasively that the open source movement started with including this whole as a service thing into the licenses. And that's where the AGPL comes into play. Yeah, I, it totally makes sense to me that, that I it's been an ongoing conversation on the podcast about just generally like, okay, you want to do an open source project, you know, what does that mean? And the licensing of it, but then also just everything from getting contributors, which we might talk a little bit more about too, but also the the funding of it. And I had um, some people from Tidelift on to talk about what they're doing. He's also the president of uh, Open Source Initiative. And so that was very interesting, kind of like, you know, this sort of this sort of struggle to keep things open, but also to continue the development of it. And Yeah, I always find that it's one of the things that irks me whenever I see my library being mentioned on Reddit and somebody says, well, you should watch out because it's AGPL licensed and you can't use it in commercial products. Then I wonder like, okay, so you expect me not to have food or shelter or whatever. That's, right. <laughs> that's basically what you're saying. What a bad, bad person for wanting payment for his work, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wonder, like, do you think that there would be an effect on the library's growth and acceptance be, because of that choice um, in some cases? I think it's certainly possible to grow a strong product even if you are licensed in this way, which as much as it irks me when people comment on it, I understand that it irks other people as well. So I understand that it's not the most permissive of licenses and that some people will just opt out because of that. But I think it's certainly possible. For instance, uh, iText itself uses the same licensing structure, and they are a multi-million dollar company. So it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. And so as far as individuals using it and experimenting with it and, and building like tools for their own purposes, that's not the issue. It's when it becomes like a commercial yeah. kind of go issue that where you're like okay this is where you're kind of crossing over to like certainly like i said i'm not a lawyer and i'm I'm certainly not going to sue anybody who's using it for their own small little hobby projects or whatever right but i think like you said there is a certain degree of fairness that we need to respect if you are using it in a company that has a very nice profit then surely you know spread the wealth around you are making your profit by using somebody else's work, to me, it makes sense that you would pay them. Right. And continue, you know, instead of them having to go back and find some other library or potentially, exactly. you know, do the additional development on top of it. Yeah, it's, there's all these interesting, intricate models of how open source can kind of move forward. You know, I was just talking to Lukas Langa about the CPython developer and residence program and the idea that there's some funding there, you know, Python itself is this large open source project too, you know, mm -hmm. and just trying to see companies kind of coming back and saying, Hey, you know, you can't just grab everything and, and like assume since it, I found it on the internet, it's free, right? Exactly. I, I had the same conversation with somebody who also used the code and he was like, well, it's open source, so I can just use it, right? 
So then I had to explain that, you know, open source is not the same as gratis, which is another term. Yeah. This is what it means. These are the differences. But I'm generally, I, I think I'm perhaps a bit too soft to do the sales and marketing of this company. Because whenever somebody asks me for a quote, they're like, well, you don't have any prices listed on your website. No, that's true. I, I want to have a discussion with you. Mm. If you are a small company of two people, obviously I'm not going to charge you the same as if you are a company of 500 making several millions. Right. That seems unfair to me. So please tell me why you need it, what you're going to do, and we can find something that works for both of us. So, I don't know, I just find it fascinating. It's, I think it's really cool also. You had mentioned in a recent post looking to get other people kind of involved in, I think the initial like Borb site, you uh, had a another contributor. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and he was helping you mostly with like graphical stuff and web stuff or was that other things yeah he he sort of motivates me whenever i get down in a sort of oh god no this is marketing <laughs> he's the person he's the person who says you know you have to do this otherwise nobody is going to know the library exists you have to and i'm fortunate enough that he's also a great web designer and web developer so he was able to offer his services to have a website up and running cool do you have experience in contributing to other open source projects? Is that something that you have a background in doing? I've done that um, a few times here and there. I'm certainly not the most active person on GitHub, but I have contributed in the past to open source projects um, like, well, they're mostly going to be PDF related. So for instance, iText, uh, for instance, Vera PDF, which is a PDF validation engine. Okay just casually logging tickets and and adding my knowledge of you know it's doing this and i think this is still a valid pdf according to the rules please check or i see that it's doing this in this piece of code the one thing that i'm most active on which is sort of related uh, i'm quite active on stack overflow and quite well versed in pdf there i think pdf is my highest ranking tag there Okay, like answering questions and... Yeah, answering questions. Helping people understand supports, yeah. Okay. Yeah, mostly telling people, no, this is not possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of a... It's funky, you know? Like, I, I think I've run into that a couple times myself where I'm like, okay, well, I'd like to do this or I want to do that and and then sort of ran into the brick wall of of, of working with it. But I had mentioned, I think, in passing that I was interested in a library that could be able to create something that had forms mm-hmm. in the sense that were actually fillable forms um, because I find that process to be excruciatingly painful with Adobe's tools to just, you know, okay, you've got, you know, maybe you designed it using Word or some other kind of thing and saved it as a PDF and now you want to create the the fillable boxes and it, it was a lot of work. I mean, I was paid money to do this for other companies and stuff. As you should be when you're doing that. <laughs> right. It's work. <laughs> and so I was like, man, there's got to be a way to do this. And so I, I had kind of mentioned it and I haven't followed up on, on diving into it, but that is something that Borb can do. Am I right? Yeah, that's something that Borb can do. And it does it in the same way that it does all the other stuff. So form elements like a text box or a radio button or whatever are just layout elements that you can specify at which position you want 
or you can leave that up to the layout engine. Yeah. And then you can actually create forms by saying, okay, I want to have a table, this many rows, this many columns, and you know, this column happens to be a text box or something. Do you have favorite tools for working with PDFs, say outside of Python, like you're either reading them or in my case, like filling them in or what have you. I dabble and I have a Adobe license for other creative tools like Photoshop and so forth. Um, so I kind of get Acrobat in it, but it's kind of my last go-to when other things won't work. Um, I don't know if you have a similar experience there. I usually use Adobe whenever I'm trying to validate a PDF because okay. honestly, that's what most people are going to open the PDF document in anyway. So right. for me, that's always a first check. Does Adobe accept this PDF document? That would be f- the free reader version. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The free, to be precise, the free reader of, I think two years ago, because I use, I use Linux and at some point they stopped supporting Linux. So the best I have is Adobe two years ago. Okay. Then I also use Vera PDF, which is a Java program that actually scans a PDF for its adherence to the PDF specification. Okay. And it outputs these beautiful error codes where it just says, you know, you're, you've invalidated this particular rule, this particular sub clause. So that's, that's very helpful because you know, it's on track if, if everything goes through. And then for Linux, uh, just reading a PDF casually. I use Ocular, which is an open source PDF viewer. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm always kind of like wondering other tools and you know, like I said, I've found a few on iOS and um I'm mostly on the Mac platform, but hmm. uh, you know, I bounce around between different things and when I was supporting these small businesses, I was having to find, you know, tools that they were going to be comfortable using day in and day out that that I could sort of guarantee I wouldn't need to do tons of support on the sort of consumption side of it, you know, and the use side of it. So I'm always intrigued to hear about more tools. Yeah. And then, like I mentioned, ghost script as well. That's one of the beautiful small little gems in Linux that you can just convert a PDF to an image or split a PDF into pages. Oh, cool. What do you feel are like the different audiences for this library or users, you could say? I think definitely Python developers who, you know, like average day business development, write me a piece of code that writes an invoice or something. That's yeah. That's certainly one of the major use cases. But I think PDF has so much more features and can do so much more that, you know, it will find a use even if you don't find it yet. For instance, PDF allows you to embed interactive 3d models in a pdf document that you can sort of configure and work with using javascript that's that's beautiful and to the best of my knowledge not a lot of people do that but i can imagine that if you are a company that builds i don't know little gadgets as business gifts or whatever it would be cool to give somebody an offer with this pdf where they can actually see you know, this is the 3D model of what we're going to deliver to you. In in that case, is it interactive inside of the reader? Yeah. Okay. That makes me think about something that I was exploring in this whole process of creating, you know, fillable forms and stuff like that. The idea of sort of code blocks, uh, JavaScript, uh, inside of the 
with a PDF to, you know, say if then, you know, basic logic, <laughs> you know, like if somebody fills out these things, then automatically fill out these other things for them. Is that something that I don't know if you've looked at or, or worked with before inside of PDFs? Like I said, PDF supports a basic level of JavaScript. It blocks right. certain constructs because, of course, you don't want a PDF to randomly start downloading data or start uploading your private data. Yeah. But you can certainly do that. And the fun thing is that even though it allows you to do a lot, these viruses that you could write in PDF don't happen that often. But when they do, they are beautiful. (laughs) So you can create a PDF document that forces itself to print hundreds of copies of itself on the first printer it finds. And that's that's evil, but also beautiful. (laughs) I can imagine uploading that document to Stack Overflow and saying something is wrong with my PDF, please check. And like, (laughs) how much paper getting used? (laughs) Yeah, the chaos that that would consume. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Are the tools that you know of that can scan for that kind of thing? Like I said, most people don't expect viruses in PDF. So like Adobe has some protections where it will say, you know, this JavaScript looks a little dicey for my taste. I'm going to turn it off, and you can turn it on if you want to. Yeah. But other than that, no. Okay. And for instance, the print issue is solved in most commercial readers. They will simply force a dialog box uh, on the user saying, you know, this document wants to do this. Do you agree? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want this insanity to happen or not? (laughs) That's too funny. You mentioned a little bit uh, about the future of PDF, I don't know if you can speak to, to that, like um, how you'd said that, uh, you know, where Adobe sees it going or the company you were working with previously, iText, you know, what do you see as the future of PDFs? I think there are challenges within the PDF standard itself. So when the PDF standard was written, a lot of options were left open to be future proof. And we are slowly getting to the time where we start thinking about these. So, for instance, if you are encrypting a PDF document, you have to allow the latest encryption algorithms to be able to do that. Otherwise, you are at some point going to get stuck Hmm. um, or you're going to be stuck using um, some kind of old hashing algorithm, SHA-1, whatever, uh, which is deprecated and yet you have to because the standard says you have to. So in terms of encryption, definitely making progress. Okay. In terms of image formats, of course, you know, JPEG 2000 and so on, leaving room to do that. I think one of the cool new features is also that PDF is now so so free in a certain sense to allow new content, but it also has a sort of compatibility mode where you can say, if by some chance you can't render this content, please render this image instead. So the user might get an image containing an error message saying, it turns out your reader doesn't support this encryption algorithm. Try again, or please use this reader. So within the standard, there are there is certainly room for improvement. I think if you go up one level and if you look at the way PDF works, there is also opportunity for improvement. Signing a PDF, for instance, is currently a sequential process. 
So that means every time you sign a document with, let's say, two people, the first person signs a hash value that belongs to the document, and the second person signs a hash value of the document plus the hash value of that first person's signature. Mm. Okay. Now, in a corporate setting, that goes wrong quite quickly because you have to sign something with a board of directors of, let's say, 10 people, and you email it to Bob, who is on vacation, and he doesn't sign the document. And in the meantime, somebody else has sent the document around to another part of the board, and now you have two documents that contain signatures that can never be merged. Right. Because either one does not have the correct hash of the other, so it's undoable. And then you have beautiful new technologies like blockchain, which is no longer that new at the moment, but allows you to build a chain of signatures of hashes. So these technologies seem to match quite well. It seems like you would be able to do something with that. Yeah. So perhaps need to look into that. I think another one is is effectively bridging the gap between a structured and an unstructured format. Because PDF, like I said, is an umbrella term for a lot of competing standards. One of them, the most basic form of PDF is unstructured, where you just have rendering instructions that may or may not be in order. And you also have structured PDF, where each piece of content is labeled as being, for instance, a paragraph or a cell in a table or whatever. So is there a way to go from one to the other? Is there a way to add structure back? Because that would solve a lot of issues. Suddenly, PDFs can become accessible to people with an impairness. Suddenly, extracting data from invoices becomes quite trivial if you are able to say, there is a table in this document with this many rows, this many columns. Right. So being able to give structure back to an unstructured document is also a big one. And that, that involves, for instance, computer vision. Yes, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of kind of things that you know, directions that it can head toward and hopefully, you know, keep compatibility always moving <laughs> with it, um, which I, I think is one of the biggest advantages of of using this format ac- across all these different computer platforms. Definitely. So I have a few questions that are kind of like my weekly questions. And sure. the first one is, what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python? I love machine learning. I've always been fascinated by crunching numbers, machine learning, data analytics, and I'm looking forward to being able to combine that with PDF. Okay, cool. Are there particular packages that that you um, dabble with? Oh, currently I'm using Keras and TensorFlow a lot. Okay. And then the next one, it doesn't have to be Python specific, but what is something that you want to learn next? I would love to learn more about the very style of python i've not been a python developer for that long only two or three years and i've been told that my coding style sometimes still resembles java or c plus plus a bit so i would like to be able to pass as a very good python developer yeah that's interesting like do you feel that java being very very strongly object oriented and very very typed is that part of it that that is uh, something that someone looking at your code would would notice, or are there other artifacts? I think certainly being typed versus not being typed is something. For instance, every variable in Bob is typed. 
even though it's not required, I run a type check every time I do a release and I make sure that everything is typed. And that's apparently something very un-Python-esque to do. <laughs> I don't know. That's changing. Um, every release yeah. of Python seems to have more of them. And um, there's some nice changes in Python 310, uh, kind of fixing the union thing to make it easier so you don't have to import anything and you can use the the pipe operator for unions of stuff. And I don't know, it's, it's getting more common, especially this idea of like, interoperability um a lot of python scripting was initially geared toward you know standalone stuff but when it has to interoperate between all these different codes types are super useful yeah definitely cool if someone wanted to uh socially connect with you or the project where where would they go you can either reach me on twitter which is linked i think in almost all of the tutorials uh, or you can always send me a message via email. Okay. Uh, you can reach me via the website. It has a contact us button. Okay, great. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. It was fun to learn much more about Borb. <laughs> You're welcome. And it was fun to be on the show. All right. Remember, security within your software supply chain is crucial for your organization. Visit cloudsmith.com slash sign up to build your private Python repository today. I want to thank your Skellikens for coming on the show. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>